to a podcast called Intrepid. I'm Stephanie Carvin. Since December 2020, there have been six attacks on Black Muslim women in Edmonton, Alberta. During these attacks, the victims were verbally and physically assaulted, often with the attacker threatening to rip off their hijab. Many of these women have reported feeling scared and traumatized, and the Muslim community in Edmonton is experiencing an elevated level of fear. On March 8th, Edmonton police made an arrest in these cases, but larger problems remain. Edmonton has seen tiki torch marches that draw a direct line between what happened in Charlottesville to Canada. All of this is occurring against a background where the government is now listing far-right extremist groups as terrorist entities. But is this the best way to counter Islamophobia? What should be done to counter a rising wave of hate? To look at these issues, I'm joined by Sarah Mushtak, a community activist and writer in Windsor, Ontario. She recently co-authored an editorial with Hanan Mohammed in the Edmonton Journal titled, Meaningful Action Required on Hate Crimes in Alberta. Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me, happy to be here. So Sarah, as I said in the introduction, we have heard about these attacks in Edmonton, but perhaps you could give us a better description as to what's actually happening. What are you hearing in communities around Canada about these different attacks? Yeah, so I think what you described is fairly accurate, that these women have been out and about minding their daily business in very public situations, often either by a mall or by a transit center or something like that in a parking lot. And then they've been attacked in broad daylight. So there's so many elements there that are concerning. I think we also need to recognize that Many of these women are Black Muslim women who are either wearing hijab or a burqa. So they're very visible, both religiously and ethnically, which puts them at greater risk. Muslim women are also generally more susceptible to street harassment um, and assaults for being more visible. And I think we need to look at that connection there as well, that for daily kind of, I hate to use the word petty, but sometimes it does get destroyed described as petty hate crimes where, where, you know, someone's getting yelled at on the street, or maybe they are actually being physically attacked. Muslim women face the brunt of it. But then when serious things start happening, like the Quebec City mosque shooting, that tends to affect Muslim men in a more violent manner. So I think we need to see that connection there that when these crimes start becoming the norm, that greater crimes are then possible as well, if we don't address this and really nip it at the bud. So you're concerned about an escalation. I mean, I hate to use, I agree with you. I don't like the word petty at all. There's no such thing in my view as a petty hate crime. These are, these are crimes meant to actually terrorize individuals. But you're, what, what I hear that you're saying is you're concerned that this is like, if you have a number of these crimes that aren't really dealt with, that people feel emboldened and there may be further more violent actions that follow. 100%. It's I, it's not the best analogy in this case, because I don't want to bring up arson. But you know, it is like kinder to a fire, right? Like if you put enough kindling together, you can have a pretty serious fire on at hand. And I think we're starting to get to that point. One of the things I was thinking about related to this as well was when New Zealand had their the attack at the mosque and two mosques in Christchurch, they had a whole investigation and they looked at this and they looked at where the fault lines basically were to make this happen. And it's unfortunate, it doesn't seem like we've really done that here in Canada or North America for that matter, even Europe. These things keep happening. We keep saying never again, and then they happen again. And so I think there definitely needs to be some 
greater action and response to make sure that this actually doesn't happen and it's not just empty words by politicians. So I said in my introduction, and I, you, I should never really try to explain how a community feels, but is it, is it true that in the wake of these attacks that there is this greater sense of danger that, that's present there now, at least in Edmonton, For if sure. not in other parts of Canada? Yeah. For sure. It's definitely more acute in Edmonton, of course, because that's where these attacks are currently happening. But it's, it's across the country. Any Muslim woman especially if you're relatively more visible, you you think twice when you're going out on public, if someone gives you a funny look, if you're by yourself, a lot of times, even like my family will be like, hey, where are you going at this time? Or what are you doing then? And right now in the pandemic, it's not happening as much, but people still have errands to run, essential things, they go to work. And so people are still going out in public. And so this is still very much so a concern. So you've got this the segment of the community that's feeling like they need to almost hide in their own homes to stay safe instead of going about and doing their daily business like any other citizen. And I think that is really heartbreaking when you think about it, right? We talk a lot for all our talk about making sure people feel included and integrated in the community. This takes us many, many steps backwards whenever this keeps happening. And I have to believe it has this terrible impact on trust as well. If, you know, you, you're not sure if these things are being taken seriously, if the community cares. So, but I also have to wonder, like, what is the impact on intra-community relations? Like, how does this have an impact on the Muslim community itself in your, in your view? Yeah, I think there's, there's a lot of great work that's being done by advocacy organizations. So for example, by the National Canadian Council for Muslims, so NCCM, they've been on this from day one, they've been advocating for this and doing really great work. A lot of mosques, for example, we've spoken about this before, about they're installing security and in response to vandalism, because a lot of mosques have been vandalized over the last little while too. Mosques are holding self-defense classes for Muslim women. And all of these things on their own aren't bad things. But when you think about why they're having to do this, it's because the community feels unsafe. And then related to that, within the Muslim community, the Muslim community is very diverse, right? People look very different. They have very different backgrounds. There's some Muslim community members who've been here for many generations. There's others who just recently came to Canada. There's a lot of different ethnicities, a lot of different languages spoken. So there's a lot of different elements there. And I think with these attacks here, we also have to acknowledge that a lot of the attacks happened against Black Muslim women. And so they have so many layers of visibility that they're racialized, they're a religious minority, they may be standing out in a different way. So they have all of these elements that are unfortunately making them targets for these kind of assaults. And I think that's also something that both the greater community needs to grapple with, but the Muslim community as well, because there's both anti-Black racism within the Muslim community and within the greater Canadian community. And sometimes we don't acknowledge that these things are a reality, right? We've heard this from so many women for so many different reasons that if they say that they were assaulted in any kind of way, people don't always believe them. And that belief can often go down depending on your race and your background and your gender. So it, that's definitely something that's even within the Muslim community of supporting our Black Muslim sisters and making sure that we're there for them in the best way. So in looking at your editorial, which again, I will link to, and I would hope everyone will who's listening to this podcast will read, 
you also outline some steps and I appreciate you only had 700 words in an editorial. Anyone who writes an editorial, you're, you're not given a lot of space, but you outline some steps that you think could be taken to address some of these, this issue in Edmonton. There, there has been this arrest made, but you know, we've seen these marches taking place in, in that same city where there's individuals who are carrying tiki torches, in some cases wearing armbands and, and things like this. So what are some steps that you feel urgently need to be taken or perhaps need to be taken with a more long-term view? Yeah. Oh, the these marches. So one of the first things we, we mentioned was, because this was specific to Alberta, but this applies to any politician across the board and any kind of public leader, is an immediate, strong, public, consistent condemnation of that attack, right? So what we saw with one of the first Tiki torches was that Premier Kenny took a couple days to respond. So that delayed response is kind of like, okay, what was going on in between there? Like, this is good or bad. There's not really, there's no fine people on both sides here kind of situation. And so when, when hate crimes like this happen, a condemnation by a politician doesn't fix it, but it, it sends a very immediate and direct response to the public that this is not okay and this won't be tolerated. So I think that kind of leadership really needs to be present from leaders at all levels, right? Whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, whatever it might be, because it it reinforces to the public that this is not okay and we're not going to tolerate it and it's not a part of our community. Just, and just to amplify that point, there is a lot of research, some of which that has been done by Barbara Perry and I believe Ryan Scrivens, that when politicians, whether local, provincial or national speak up after these events occur, it actually generates more community resiliency generally, and, and it makes for a more effective counter-violent extremism response. For sure. It's, I, I hate to bring the former president to the table here, but I think one of the differences there was that his non-condemnation of certain groups and activities really allowed them in, in some elements to feel more confident, to be more public and show up with their white supremacist leanings and whatnot. So I think that when you have that countered with someone saying that, no, this is not okay and this won't be tolerated, there is a difference there and it does make a difference to the community in question as well. I think that's really uh, an important thing and and I would hope uh, if there's any political leaders listening that they would feel that they should be doing this. I I will just add for the political condemnation as well that it has to be sincere, right? And it has to be followed up with action because it's very, very easy for communities to snuff it out when someone's just saying it for the sake of saying it because they feel like they're going to get skewered online versus when someone is saying it and saying, you know what, this this is wrong. This is something that I will not tolerate. And this is what we're going to do locally to address it. There's a difference there. So I hope that if there are politicians listening, they understand the difference there as well. So that's one important step that community leaders can take is just to speak out against it and and show your concern, show that you're taking this seriously and and say that you're going to be taking steps to to counter these things. I think that's a really important point. What other steps do you think could be taken? Yeah, so there's a few other things as well. I think one of them is monitoring and documenting hate crimes on a national, maybe even provincial level, but it would be nice that if federally we could do that. And of course, there's, there's you know, sensitivities with collecting this kind of data. So it would have to be done appropriately, but we can't address effectively what we can't measure. Communities of color, by the way, marginalized communities of any kind, 
no hate crimes exist. We, we're, we're experiencing them on a daily basis, unfortunately. So we don't need data to tell us that our reality is actually the truth. But data, of course, when we're talking about policies and changes, when it, you know, policymakers are looking into, data does help support that and it does help support funding. So if we can track hate crimes, we know that they're happening and then we can put appropriate funding towards addressing them and preventing them from happening in response to that. And I think that governments also need to ensure that they're properly funding and supporting funds that support victims of these crimes. So whether that is anti-racism or anti-discrimination funds or gender-based violence funds for specifically for women. So one of the examples we gave in our op-ed was in Alberta, that a victim fund was the funding is being taken away or it's going to be accessed for other resources or other purposes as well in our Alberta. And that's a concern, right? Because yeah, (laughs) it was a little shocking when I read that as well, where I was like, how is this okay? And victim advocate groups are very concerned about that because there's a lot of trauma victims go through. And then there's a lot of associated potential costs, whether they're medical or legal or whatever else they might be. So victims need supports to go through that. Another way to support victims would be to ensure that both investigators, law enforcement, and courts have the proper tools and resources and training on hand to support victims when they come forward. Because we know that when victims aren't taken seriously, if they aren't believed, if they feel like they're being re-traumatized when they're telling their story or their experience with assault, it can be really damaging. And that can prevent them from coming forward. And even within communities, people talk. So if someone has such a traumatizing experience, again, coming forward to law enforcement, which was an example we did see in Alberta, they tell their friends and they tell their family. And if those people also experienced it, they're not going to come forward. So it shouldn't have to take convincing the courts or law enforcement to take this seriously. They should have the proper training and tools and mechanisms in place to take victims seriously so that the criminal justice system doesn't traumatize them and the criminal justice system gives them the restoration that they need. That's a really important point. I mean, this isn't just like having your purse snatched. This is a, it's an attack that goes to the very core of who, who the person is, right? That That's what a hate crime is. Right. And to have, and to be believed and to be treated in a sensitive way, I think is, is I, I could see why that is, is just so fundamental. But in, you've raised this point and I have to ask if it's whether that it's because the women who did go through this trauma, they were not treated in, in, in a way that really helped them or in a way that perhaps made in some ways the situation worse than, than it otherwise would have been. Could, did the police need to, need to do better? Yes, unequivocally, yes. A NCCM reported when they released the statement of one of the victims that she wasn't, she didn't have a good experience with the police. And I believe the mayor of Edmonton also corroborated that story. And this is the thing, we don't need like corroboration and for an advocacy organization to necessarily say this because many women have this experience, let alone Muslim women, when it comes to reporting hate crimes, right? It's, it's unfortunate that the trainings and tools and mechanisms aren't in place because it seems like law enforcement is sometimes behind when it comes to anti-Muslim 
racism, anti-Black racism, and other forms of racism. Even when we talk about that larger conversation around white supremacy and dealing with white nationalists in the country, a lot of law enforcement doesn't have the proper trainings and tools and techniques to deal with it. I always reference this story from Windsor, where a few years ago, our former police chief and our mayor were pictured at a public event with a man wearing catches from the Sons of Odin, which is a relatively prominent, (laughs) yeah, I see Stephanie's doing a thumbs down. That was a bad choice. And so the argument at that moment was that, oh, we're so sorry, we didn't know better. And I can perhaps forgive the mayor for that, because national security is not really his area of expertise. So sure. But you know, when a police chief is pictured like that, that's a public relations win for a white supremacist group, right? Whether or not it was intentional. And so that's, that just points to a gap in the way that law enforcement may be collecting intelligence or being able to gauge what is a threat in the community and what isn't. Because I can, we can make that parallel with the Muslim community as well, where oftentimes Muslim community members feel like we were the focus of so much of national security at the expense of other threats to the country, right? And we saw that with New Zealand as well in their report after the Christchurch shooting, where they very much acknowledged that. They're like, yeah, we, we were focusing on you guys, and this meant we, we missed other threats to the country. And so I think there is this, long story short here is I think there is definitely a gap when it comes to law enforcement, investigation, and national security in addressing this appropriately. And do you feel the same way? I, I don't know if there's been a, a federal level response to this, but there has been a little bit more in terms of, of public safety has been providing. There's a community fund where mosques and, and synagogues and other religious institutions, community institutions can apply for funding to build fences and, and security cameras and all these kinds of things. I mean, that's one response. I guess that that's been out there. Do you, do you feel the same goes for the the kind of national response that we've seen to this kind of rise in in white supremacist violence or far right violence? Yeah, I mean, whenever I think of those things, although I appreciate it, of course, I want mosques and synagogues to feel as safe as possible. And if a security fence and security cameras provide that, all the power to those things. But on a day to day basis, a security camera and a fence isn't going to stop a Muslim woman on her way to transit getting attacked, right? So right. there's still a gap there. And that's the question of who are these people? Why are they feeling this way? And where are they being radicalized? Like, you know, we make these jokes, but it's like often in the Muslim community, it's like, we need to talk about where white supremacists are getting radicalized and how did they get radicalized? And what meeting did they go to? Where were they at? And who and are their like, friends? It is a little bit of... Yeah, and it's it's a little bit of gallows humor, but it's like, that was what we faced at a level that we felt was in a, disproportionate. So it's, it's definitely one of those things where there's a gap and there, there needs to be perhaps a reappropriation or reallocation of resources to actually determine what is a threat to community member safety in the community and what isn't. So all of this, I mean, this is this has been really fascinating. And uh, just for what it's worth, this is a, a very hard topic, I think, for, for anyone to really face and address, but particularly if you're a Muslim woman going out every day, it's just not an easy topic necessarily to talk about. And so I appreciate that. But I also wanted to note that it's taking place in this wider conversation about how we do tackle 
far right extremism in Canada. And you, you've alluded to this a little bit in, in your last answer. So we've talked about this on the podcast before in, in the sense of now we're listing groups like the Proud Boys and other far right extremist groups as now terrorist entities, right? They can have their the financial assets seized and there can be some, some pretty dire consequences. And in, in some groups have absolutely cheered this on and said, yes, this is, this is appropriate. But others have raised concern in, in the Muslim community that while it's good that the government is paying attention to violence that is coming from the far right or, or white supremacy, but they, they have expressed concerns that this is actually not the correct route to go down. Do you have concerns about some of the recent steps that the Canadian government has taken in this regard? And, and how do you think it relates to this kind of wider issue of tackling Islamophobic crimes that are occurring in Canada? I agree with a lot of community members on this, on that on on the surface level, it feels good and it feels exciting to see that, oh, hey, like my community is not going to be the target of a wider national security framework. But, you know, years of data and research and history shows us that no, no matter what happens when, you know, laws are widened, there's usually a disproportionate effect on Black, Indigenous and other marginalized groups. So when you're, you're, making it easier to surveil groups or arrest them. The fear is that more people from marginalized backgrounds would get affected by that. So I don't think it's necessarily that we need to expand these laws or have more laws, but it's about how we apply them and making sure we're applying them appropriately and equitably. That's a really interesting point that you raise. And I, I do believe just, just to amplify it a bit, it, it reflects what Michael Nesbitt, who's been on this podcast quite a number of times, has found in his research that these laws exist, but we only tend to apply them to one community. And in some ways, we can try to broaden it out, but that doesn't necessarily erase the risks around disproportionate surveillance and, and other things like this, even, even if we are now looking at more wider groups. And to me, at least it raises questions about like, if communities are being targeted, should we be finding more ways, not just to put a fence around the community, but to actually make the community itself stronger in terms of like, like how do you actually promote like more resilience in these communities? And how do you, it broke my heart at the beginning of the podcast when you talked about, yes, they're offering self-defense classes for women. Well, that's not ideal, right? Like that's not the way I think we should be tackling this problem by building fences and offering women self-defense classes. Although self-defense classes are fun and everyone should take them. It's, it's, it's good sometimes just to punch and kick things. But moreover, I th I'm not sure this is the approach to which we should be taking this. And I'm, I'm wondering, but do you have any ideas about like promoting resiliency in, the, in communities and what it is that might make them stronger? Yeah, there's a few things. There's an activist, Julie Lalonde, who wrote a book called Resilience is Futile. And I think that phrase really, really stuck with me because it's, especially in this last year with the pandemic as well, is that we're, we're praising resilience as like, oh, it's so great. Don't worry about them. They're resilient. Instead of saying, how do we remove the reasons for why this community needs to act resilient? Right. So I think one of the, for a previous op-ed, I was able to chat with Dr. Amarnath Singh, And in that conversation, he also spoke about that, that knee-jerk national security response isn't okay, but it's, there's a balanced approach that we need. 
And that balanced approach is that condemnation from political leaders. We also need to talk about media coverage and how that sometimes that was also disproportionately negative and does fuel fire against marginalized communities. And then recent events as well related to that is that when people are coming forward to speaking about it in the media as well, that they're not re-traumatized by sharing their story in the media and that that they're not necessarily put at risk for sharing their story in the media. And we're not going to be able to change everyone's opinions in that way. But I think that that work in the public needs to be done in order to make sure that it the community is a safer space for everyone. And then related to that as well, I, I brought up law enforcement a few times, but I think that sometimes law enforcement in some of my outreach work would often say that we don't know what's going on, but the Muslim community doesn't trust us or different other ethnic groups don't trust us. It must be from their experiences from back home. And I would always counter that from people who are with a similar experience as mine or a background as mine, who are first came here at at a young age or second, third, fourth generation, they've only had experience with law enforcement here. So sometimes you have to take the onus and be like, the community is fearful of law enforcement and does not trust law enforcement to take um, their concerns seriously. And so what do we need to do to improve that experience for them? Because at the end of the day, their job is to serve the public and Muslim community members are still part of the public. So how do we make that experience better for them? So as we're coming to the end of the podcast, there's so many different currents that we're talking about here. One, of course, is this rise in uh, hate crimes targeting uh, Black Muslim women in Edmonton. But we should acknowledge, of course, that these attacks against the Muslim community are, are happening throughout Canada. It's just, it made sense to focus on Edmonton as a way to look at this issue more broadly. And then we've talked about the sense that the federal government is trying to tackle this problem by expanding what it considers to be a terrorist group and the terrorist entities, which again, we've already talked about. But there's this third current that I think is important uh, to talk about. And it's perhaps not exactly in the national security space, but it belongs in this conversation, which is, of course, legislation, Bill C-21 in Quebec that is being passed, which of course prevents religious minorities from wearing articles of their faith if they are working in the public sector. And this is a bill that a lot of people would say actually codifies anti-Semitism, Islamophobia as, as, as a part of actual law in a province in Canada. And in my view, from Oshawa being what it's worth, I, I don't, I, I'm against, I think people should be able to wear whatever they want. We've gone through a year of people wearing masks and it hasn't exactly broken the country any, any, any worse than say a virus has. And I think it's taken a lot of the, the ammunition out of that argument. But I guess my question to you is, how do you feel that this issue of of Bill C-21 is challenging the ability to take on this issue of Islamophobia more generally? Yeah, I think just to begin it, it feels like it's gaslighting the community because you've got this government that is saying, provincial government, that is saying that we're not racist, racism, systemic racism doesn't exist in Quebec but we are going to legislate Islamophobia, right? So it's like, you, you can't have it both ways. Either just admit that it's racist, it would make everyone's life easier if you just did that, or acknowledge the issues with it and try to address those. I, I, I really appreciate our community members who are of the Jewish faith and the Sikh faith and others who have visible religious symbols because they just got looped into this. Everyone knows that 
this was a bill that was targeted at Muslim women. This is something that people have a problem with hijab, niqab, and any kind of visible Muslim female attire. And that unfortunately, people from other faiths got looped into that just to make it seem like it's not totally racist against one group. And so I really appreciate that they're being looped into this and that it's also harmful to those communities as well. But I think when, when we're talking about political rhetoric, is it's really hard to say that we're going to take this seriously and that attacking Muslim women is not okay while provincial government has a law like this on hand, right? So Muslim women in Quebec have for a long time been facing harassment and there's been lots of incidents of assaults there as well. And this type of codification just makes it more okay for them to face this type of discrimination in their daily life. We can't say on one hand that we want Muslim women to be part, you know, active members of society and then literally make laws that ban them from doing so. And then I, I really appreciate your point that you brought up about the pandemic, because that's one of my favorite Twitter rants for the last year, is that every time I see someone and who's very well-meaning say like, I love wearing a mask and like, I appreciate the anonymity that I get from wearing a mask. And it's been so great wearing a mask over the last year. It just makes me angry because there's, there's so few women who wanted to wear niqab. And we had this whole federal election based on women, one woman who wanted to wear the niqab during her, you know, citizenship ceremony. So it's, it's the same thing in Quebec as well, that Muslim women just become this political football because it gets votes and it is a wedge issue that's beneficial to certain parties, unfortunately. And at the end of the day, it's the women who pay for it because they're the ones who are a being stopped from accessing these jobs, these services, whatever else it might be, and then be feeding into this <laughs> this almost like self-fulfilling prophecy of being told that they're not integrating in society, but they're not legally allowed to do that either. So it's very frustrating. I could talk about this for a very long time about how hypocritical and maddening it is. And my heart goes out to my sisters in Quebec because I can't imagine living under that kind of knowing that that's codified in law. That's really, really disheartening. And I really appreciate the work that advocacy organizations like NCCM are doing currently to fight this. What Quebec is doing is saying that you, you're not allowed to be in a member of society because it's codified in law that you can't participate in the public sector as long as you choose to wear any sort of religious symbol. But then at the other time, we get mad at women when they aren't quote unquote, integrating into society. So I think that's, that's also something that governments need to, and politicians, public leaders need to come around and acknowledge that there, there's very blatant hypocrisy here. Sarah, this has been an important conversation. And I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and being open and honest with us for talking about your editorial and sharing your ideas about what needs to be done and what is of concern, uh, perhaps feeding into, into some of this, the issues that we've talked about. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure, despite the circumstances. Right, exactly. Here's to the non-pandemic future. <laughs>